internet friends, and welcome to Love Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and as ever, we are here to brighten your days, anger your souls, and tell you how to live your lives in that order. And Andy, you had something you wanted to ask me about. I, I very much did, because, um, so the Clerks 3 trailer came out, and I saw this just scrolling Twitter, and I hoped against hope that you wouldn't find out for at least a few days. My, I had this whole plan where I was like going to pause the recording and make you watch the trailer and get your real-time reactions. And then I told you about this and you were like, I've known about this for years because I listen to Kevin Smith's podcasts. That's right. So the, the moment robbed for me at least... What are your thoughts on the upcoming Kevin Smith movie, Clerks 3? <sighs> so I feel like Clerks is a bit of a cornerstone in this podcast. Um, you did you did that movie for your other podcast, Cult Fiction, and that is the episode you had me guest on. Absolutely. Because yeah. it's one of my favorite movies of all time. Sure. We did a whole segment here on Kevin Smith. Yep. So, Clerks 3. I am definitely interested in it. I love the first Clerks. I liked the second Clerks a lot. Um, I don't know if you know this. This is actually the second pass at a Clerks 3. I did not know that. So, fun story. Kevin Smith wrote Clerks 3 and was shopping it around trying to get get it made. Um, he, he, got all, he got a bunch of the original cast to sign on to come back and everything. And it fell through largely for financial reasons and contract-based reasons. It's the same reason we don't have Mallrats 2, which he also wrote. Sure. But it just hasn't come through yet. Now, what happened was Kevin Smith had his Widowmaker heart attack. And after having that heart attack, he real he changed a whole bunch about his life. But one thing he realized is that that Clerks 3 that he made, which... Isn't as far as I know, I don't think that script is public. I know that in order to save a local New Jersey theater, like a theater from the area that he grew up in, the theater where Jeff Anderson um, was actually acting in when he auditioned. Yes. Sure. Okay. In order to save that theater, he staged a reading of his Clerks Three script. So people bought tickets and got to go to this event where they got to see a cast ranging from the actual Clerks actors to Kevin Smith's friends Mm. um, and other famous people come and do a reading for this for saving this theater that was going to close down. Sure. Other than that, I don't know that that original script has come out, but Kevin Smith has basically talked about it being representative of an older version of him and that it is very much like a less mature take that he wanted to have. After his heart attack, he got the idea for this Clerks 3, which has apparently been filmed. And actually, I think I remember him talking about it as he was filming it. Like, he would tweet okay. he would tweet updates about it and everything. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. And to fill in listeners who are unaware of what Clerks 3 is potentially about from the trailer... It is very clear that it is a meta movie within a movie in which Randall has a heart attack or something. Randall has a heart attack. 
and then makes the decision to do something with his life, that something is make a movie, that movie is very clearly Clerks. Yes, he's going to make a movie about working in the convenience store. And and yeah, it's it's essentially Kevin Smith kind of writing his past and his current life together at once. Well, and you use the word mature, and that actually is what strikes me is this. This feels like, and, and this probably isn't going to happen because why would it? But this could be, like, what, what, what I'm trying to say, if Kevin Smith released this film and then retired from directing, I would say perfect. What a what a moment to go out on what a what a closing of your like oeuvre as a director to kind of sort of remake the film that you gambled your entire life on and won Hmm. that would be very wonderful now of course of course he's probably going to continue making films or at the very least produce shit and that's fine i mean he's he's almost retired a few times sure but yeah, I mean, I'm I'm intrigued by this. There was um, so at time of recording, I was actually like scrolling Instagram. Um, I think it was either yesterday or today, and he posted a photo of him from the set with Amy Sedaris. Mm. Amy Sedaris is in the movie and plays the doctor who saves Randall's life. Right. And obviously, it's going to be written very comedically. But he actually named her character after the actual doctor who saved his life. Uh. I do love that. Yeah, like, it's... This was a thing. Those of you who didn't follow the Kevin Smith heart attack thing, like, he went out and, like, did a performance. Like, he did one of his talk sessions in front of an auditorium and then had a heart attack. Sure. And it was a... And and the thing is, like, a lot of people who have only ever seen Kevin Smith in, like, a handful of his early movies are going to be like, we'll probably have some fairly fat phobic comments to make about him but he had he was actually like healthing it up he was getting healthier he was exercising fairly regularly he was eating better and he still had the heart attack and sure. afterwards he and afterwards he made this whole turnaround and his he changed the way he did his career he went vegan like which is a thing that he and his daughter bond over cuz she's vegan as well and I see this movie. This th- first of all, this movie is going to be tremendous fan service for anyone who's just a fan of Clerks and the Viewers universe. There's a bit in the trailer where like someone says, "Are Jay and Silent Bob going to be in the movie?" And th- he's just like, "Well, they're kind of like C3PO and R2D2. They've been there from the beginning." Which is hilarious because the last Kevin Smith film, unless there's one I'm unaware of, was the. Jay and Silent Bob Amazon Prime reboot reboot yeah Jay and Silent Bob reboot I don't know if he's done any since then but yeah probably which I know I haven't seen I don't think you've seen I have not seen it actually and that one that one has Jay like being a father like discovering that he is the father of like an adult child and that adult child's played by Harley Quinn Smith right like it's it's He's just increasingly, as he has gone back to the well of the Viewers universe, he's just gotten more and more fucking meta. Which I deeply appreciate. I don't think it's a surprise to anybody that I say I deeply appreciate. 
meta done well is just the best funniest shit to me and manages to be rather poignant i feel like so i'm i'm very excited i know this is probably something that like you and i and stephanie and mo are gonna have to see day one like this is going to be an event i doubt stephanie and mo will care um, too much, but hey, maybe. You got a date with me then. All right, I'm here for it. <laughs> Welcome to Love Hate Relationship. Uh, when we are not giving pop culture updates and telling you about uh, the latest movie trailers, we are usually talking in our normal format, which is where one of us talks about something we love, the other one talks about something we hate, and then we take yours and the internet's relationship questions and provide our perfectly unqualified advice. And Alex, you've got the love. I do, and uh, this is going to be a fun one, I think. Uh, <laughs> I think I've mentioned this on the pod before, but, like, I try not to do too many music topics in a row. Sure. I always try and, like, spread it out a little bit, because I could legitimately probably talk about music something or other every single episode. But um, as of this week, our four-piece rock band episode dropped, so I'm thinking I'm going to bring in another music topic. So, Andy, okay. to introduce this... Because to most listeners, this name is going to mean nothing. Just like when I did Tim Pierce, like just just like when I did Desmond Child, it's just it's not going to mean anything. But to intro this, Andy, I'm going to list ten songs to you that I'm at least somewhat sure you are aware of. These are songs that either everyone knows pretty much, or you and I have talked about before. Okay. So. And I'm going to ask you what they have in common, if anything, sonically for you. Okay. okay. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's we're, go. We're gonna play this game. All right. First one of one I know you hate. Run DMC and Aerosmith's "Walk This Way." Just hilarious when when you can just say Aerosmith's "Walk This Way." Fuck you. Run DMC and Aerosmith's <laughs> "Walk This Way." Nirvana smell like smells like Teen Spirit. Rage Against the Machine. Bulls on Parade. Avenge Sevenfold. Bat Country. Slayer. Rain and Blood. Coheed in Cambria, Welcome Home, Blink-182, Feeling This, Jeff Buckley's Hallelujah, White Zombies, Thunderkiss 65, and Linkin Park's Papercut. Okay. So these were in the notes, which I, I perused this list, and I'm glad I did because I've had to think long and hard about what my answer to this could be because I threw you some curveballs in it. You did throw me some curveballs. Like I was like, okay, they all they all were singles. Like they I all, mean, sonically, what do they have? In right, 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 right. And my answer sonically, which came to me after some thought, with the exception of Hallelujah, because I don't think there's any guitar on it. Though I imagine. I'm trying to think through how Hallelujah starts. The thing that I think sonically all these have in common is they open with the hook riff. Like thinking about Smells Like Teen Spirit, Walk This Way, Bulls on Parade. All of those start with like instantly recognizable guitar lines. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, Honestly, the one song on here I know I have not really ever listened to was Rain and Blood because I've never been a big Slayer Slayer fan. Okay, interesting. But Bat County starts this way. Welcome Home starts this way. Feeling This kind of starts this way. Um, 
So that is that is the only thing I can think of is they all like start with the hook. Okay. And that's the first thing you hear as the listener. Interesting. I will tell you there is guitar on Jeff Buckley's Hallelujah. And it actually starts with a very granted, it's not a distorted guitar. That's sure. that's what makes it an outlier here. But it does start with like that very that that kind of meditative back and forth between two chords mm. uh, it's a c and an a minor but like it's just back and forth between these two chords for i think it's like six or eight bars before you even get to the vocal okay well then yeah that that proves my point too i haven't listened i have not listened to paper cut in forever but i'm imagining it does the same thing that's the one that starts with the <laughs> okay well all right then <laughs> all right no i'm here for it i appreciate that i had no idea what would happen when i when i listed that to you um you're not a music production guy no you are a video production guy which does include audio Indeed. However, the audio for what you specialized in, which was video, film, TV, and the audio for specifically music are related but separate skill sets. Right. And my own personal career trajectory, audio was always my weakest skill. So uh, even in video production audio, I was never an audio guy. Yeah. And that's and that is totally fine. I was interested in getting that kind of layman's opinion there. Sure. Um, some things, a few things that I would say, all of those songs have in common. All of them are very, very. If you're looking at them on an EQ curve, if you're looking at just bass, middle, and treble, they are all very well balanced, but very mids focused. Okay. Such that you hear all of the instrumentation really well. I can take any of those songs. I can take Backcountry and I can take Papercut and I can go, or, and I can listen to it probably with like decent speakers or headphones and go, all right, I can hear the bass. I can hear the drums. Not only can I hear the drums, I can hear the kick and the snare sure. and the toms and the cymbals. The vocals are all very crisp. Everything blends nicely together, but if I focus, I can hear every individual instrument. Mm -hmm. That's one thing I would say they all probably have in common. Um, they're all just very, very good mixes. And the mixes of those songs are all done by my love for this episode, uh. a man by the name of Andy Wallace. Okay. Now, before I said that name, before you read these notes, have you ever heard that name in your life? No. Nobody has. <laughs> Once again, this is going to be me talking about a motherfucker who is responsible for so much incredible art, or at least contributing to it. Mm. And nobody knows who the fuck he is. Which, honestly, this is becoming one of my favorite through lines of the love-hate relationship experience. It is. And you know what? It's Here's the thing. Like, I've talked about songwriter. Uh, I've talked about a songwriter. I've talked about, um, you know, I've talked about a director. Um, why am I blanking here? I've talked about music acts. Mm -hmm. And I've talked about studio musicians. Really? Here, I'm not talking about a musician. This man, as far as I, I mean, I assume he probably plays some instruments, but as far as I know, he's never like done any of the tracking on any of these. 
he is a producer and a mixer. And I'm mostly going to be talking about his mixing here, but he's a producer and an engineer and a mixer. And that's a thing I think nobody thinks about. Very much so. I think the most anybody thinks about that person is when you are watching a rock biopic, you know, a, a musician biopic, there inevitably is like, a scene of them recording something that will become a well-known hit. And there is where you see the studio engineer, like raising the, the audio meters up and giving his opinion. That's the thing. If if I'm going to put this down to like movie terms, a producer is like a director. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some people are familiar with producers. There are certainly famous producers. You know, you have your Timbaland's, You have your Pharrell's. You have producers who are well-known for being producers. An engineer, which Andy Wallace has done, is like your cameraman or your camera person. They're the ones who who are physically doing... And and I guess you can kind of say they're kind of camera and setting. Yeah. Because your engineer will... Is the one, you know, operating the console... But they're also the one placing microphones, setting up the room, probably putting up the acoustic foam, getting things together so that you have the right kind of sound. Okay, I I feel the analogy here. And then your mixer is your editor. Sure. And everyone has a concept of an editor. Even if you've never thought about editing in a movie, you've seen a badly... You and I have watched the Twilight movies. Those things are edited like shit. Absolutely. Whereas, like, I remember seeing interviews with Alfred Hitchcock where he talked about editing in movies and how you create context and create movement and storyline using editing. Yeah. So there is good and bad there. But that's kind of my... He does all three of these things to varying degrees. There are some things where he is the producer and the engineer and the mixer. Some he just engineers and mixes. Some he just mixes. Some he just engineers. So even more than a Desmond Childs, this is somebody who is truly behind the scenes of music. And he is a journeyman about it. I have seen interviews with this man, and he is very... He's very much about, like, I have my opinions, I have my ways that I like to do things, but I serve my clients. He calls them clients. He calls these artists his clients. Respect. So he is very much a journeyman about this. So getting into Andy Wallace. First off, a big debt of gratitude for Rick Beato and his YouTube channel for a lot of my info here. Uh, I will link... Um, a video where he talked about Andy Wallace's mixing techniques. I'll link that in the show notes. Um, Please feel free to check that out if any of this is at all interesting to you. Mm -hmm. Now, Andy Wallace was born in 1947 in New Jersey. He's an American record producer and more notably a mixing engineer. And he began his career as the chief engineer of his own L.A. studio, which was successful for a while. Um... In my research, I couldn't find any, like, huge hits that came out of this studio that he owned in L.A. But he was successful enough that he had some cachet, he had experience, um, and he had some cash. Yeah. And then he moved to, he moved back to New York um, in the early 80s. At that point, he began working with a ton of different artists, but very specifically started to get a little bit of a buzz working with newly emerging hip-hop artists at the time, like Africa Bombada and Run DMC. These these were some of the earliest hip-hop acts to actually get records out. 
And he, like, he hooked up with Rick Rubin and started doing mixes for Def Jam Records. He hooked up with Bombada. He hooked up with Matume, who are all early, early hip hop acts. Okay. And that was kind of, he got a little bit of buzz from that. Um, now, following the success of his mix, uh, of his mixing and engineering on Run DMC's Raising Hell album, which included their Walk This Way cover, which was, you know, kind of arguably the thing that broke them mainstream. It got them on MTV. Yeah. He mixed that. And at that point, his reputation was sort of made. And in the and just in the five years that followed his working on that record, in that five years alone, he worked with Slayer, The Cult, Nirvana, Rage Against the Machine, and the Rollins Band, among a whole bunch of others. Fascinating. Okay, so maybe maybe this is too uh, vague of a question, but like, how often does that happen? And and specifically, it, it sounds like he became the hot new thing on the block. But as we just discussed, people aren't necessarily aren't necessarily treating it with the same cachet as producers or new artists when it comes to your mixers and your engineers. But in, in Andy Wallace's case, they were. So for layman, yeah, nobody knew who the fuck Andy Wallace was. All they knew was that this particular Slayer album sounded killer. Okay. They knew this cult album sounded great. But business people knew who he was. Gotcha. Business people understood I, I'm going to talk a lot about Nirvana's Nevermind in this um, because I think that it's really – it's some of his best work. The thing about Nevermind is Nevermind was um, Nirvana's second album. It was their major label debut, and they produced it with – it was produced by Butch Vig. Now, Butch Vig was kind of an in-house guy at Sub Pop. He's also the drummer for Garbage. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. But, he's, but he is a record producer, and he's a good producer. He is good at getting solid takes and just and, and doing all the producery things. Now, he did a mix of the record, which I'll get back to, which the label was not satisfied with. They were not happy with his mixes. Um, so they brought in Andy Wallace. And what Andy Wallace did... Andy Wallace, as far as I know, he never talked to Nirvana. He never talked to Butch Vig. They were basically like, okay, we got this. Here's all the stems. Here's all the raw tape. Um, We've heard Butch's mixes of these. We don't think they're going to work. What can you do with them? And he basically sat with those raw tapes and mixed the version of Nevermind, the version of Smells Like Teen Spirit and In Bloom and Come As You Are and Polly and Something in the Way, which just got huge with the huge again with the Batman movie. Mm. All of those were just Andy Wallace in a room with raw tapes just going, okay, I'm going to mix this the best that I can. Huh, okay. And he kind of became, in that particular case, he was kind of a pinch hit. But he was a pinch hit who at that point had been working in, he'd been working in this industry for like a decade and a half. And he would, he was really, he'd really made his name like five, six years earlier. 
Nirvana were actually pissed about Andy Wallace's mix because they thought they sounded too good. Because Nirvana was a trash band at the end of the day (laughs) who wanted everything to sound like... Kurt Cobain didn't pay attention to his to, to what his tone sounded like. Right. He wanted to step on beat up boss pedals and max out all of his knobs and just like be as loud and brash and abrasive as possible. Hell yeah. <laughs> Alternatively, Dave Grohl, I maintain, did care. Um, and Andy Wallace mixed several Foo Fighters albums. Okay, yeah. I mean, well, that makes sense. Yeah. But like Dave Grohl was actually a good drummer. But all of this is to say, at that point, like, he was just brought in by a studio who was like, we need a good mixer on this. This was, this was Geffen Records. And they were like, this is, this band has the potential to be the biggest act in music right now. They knew what they were doing when they signed Nirvana. Because Nirvana was maybe the most mainstream accessible band to come out of that Seattle movement. And that Seattle movement had gotten some very big buzz because Sonic Youth had done pretty well at that point. Um, Soundgarden had a really, really good buzz behind them. Like they hadn't broken huge yet, Mm -hmm. but they were like, okay, we're ready for the band from this scene that's going to break through. And we think it might be Nirvana, but we don't think we're going to get it with these Butch Vig mixes. Andy Wallace, will you come and mix this so that it sounds good for radio? So it sounds good for MTV. And we still listen to his mixes of that. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Yeah. So since that time, he's become something of the go-to mixing guy for any major label rock band that want to sound, frankly, just incredible. Apart from the albums, for all of those songs I listed above... He's worked with Chevelle, Stained, Soundgarden, Puddle of Mud, A Perfect Circle, System of a Down, all your favorite System of a Down records. Andy Wallace mixed them. Disturbed, he mixed The Sickness. Okay. Mudvayne, Corn, Limp Biscuit, Sonic Youth, Skillet, Screaming Trees, Good Charlotte, Three Doors Down, Atreyu, Coldplay, Portugal the Man, Gojira. He's even worked with Kelly Clarkson and Natalie Imbruglia and Sheryl Crow, Bruce Springsteen, and Paul McCartney, in case you think he's only a heavy guy. Okay, and yeah, I mean, a very wide range of acts, even just looking at the rock bands, more than a couple were shit that I, like, would listen to. Some of the first bands that I would just listen to nothing but... Chevelle and Disturbed and Good Charlotte and Skillet. I was gonna say you talk about you've talked about going to Rock the Universe. He makes Skillet and Reliant K albums. Yeah, yeah, all right. So why I love this man. As far as what Wallace does as a mixer and an engineer, there isn't a lot of inventing the wheel for him. He does what many producers do, but he does it so well it's almost scary. So example. And I'm going to get a little technical here, so if you have any questions or anything like you think our audience will be confused by anything I talk about, stop me and, and ask. Okay. So most rock engineers will cut their drums with drum samples. So we'll take the actual drums that were played in a session. He'll put a gate on them so that they cut off very, very quickly. And then he'll use a sample drum sound to fill it out and create ambiance. A lot of the time, that sample will come from them just sitting in the studio, doing a snare hit, doing a kick drum hit, 
getting something really clean and good sounding and then putting it in not to replace what was there, but to make it sound bigger. Does that make sense? It, it does. I suppose my first question is why don't you just, why are you manufacturing the sound that you already have? Because in a live context, and in, in an actual I am playing these drums context, yeah. your snare hits are going to sound wildly different sometimes. It is very, very difficult to get a human being to cleanly deliver the same cut every single time. Okay, I suppose that makes sense. There also might be situations where you'll have someone playing a take and you might get something like, okay, I've mic'd the toms and the toms sound perfect, except for they're getting bleed through from the kick drum. I'm not gonna do a take where I have Dave Grohl just play the toms. He's gonna play the whole thing. Okay, okay. Waiting years for this animal. Now we see who best. So the idea is with, with these cut-in samples, you can create a certain ambiance and you can get a certain consistency in them. Lots of people do this. It's not just an Andy Wallace thing, but he does it so well that it's just, it's, it's frightening. And unless you actually A-B his drum tracks, you would never know there were samples in there. He is so good at blending the things together. So to go back to the filmmaking metaphor, this is like a visual effects artist who just knows what that sweet, sweet spot is to make something that is green screen look believable. Exactly. Okay. I, think that, I think that's a great, that, that is a great way to do it. And even thinking about that, let's take that metaphor a step farther. So... He's not using, like, Pro Tools program drums. Yeah. He's taking actual samples done in the studio. So it's the thing where, okay, in the studio, we've got the snare drum, for example. Now, we're going to record a hit of the snare drum with the microphone six inches away, 12 inches away, 18 inches away. 24 inches away, all the way across to the other side of the room so that you have all of that different room reverb. Okay. And he's and it's the actual drum played by the actual artist or, or the actual studio person, and it's cutting those in so that they work within that larger context. Got it. If that makes sense. Much like a CGI artist who's going to be have a much easier time making good-looking CGI if they have a reference. Which makes, yeah, that makes complete sense. Okay. The, exactly. The reason Jurassic Park CGI works so well is because they were basing it off of puppets. Yep. And giant animatronic dinosaurs. And the reason why Jurassic World CGI is meh is not so much of that. <laughs> right. Another demonstrative example, again concerning ambiance, is that he puts chorus or flange on all of his bass tracks. This one is a little more unique. This is actually a signature of his. Okay. And, and I'm not gonna lie. I was surprised when I learned this. I'm a bassist. I have a pedal board with several effects on it. I do not have chorus or flange 
on any of like I don't have that on my pedal board. If I'm going to talk about like a chorus bass sound, it's actually kind of a very 80s thing to me. Like uh, I'm going to ask you to put in a drop here um, from of the bass guitar from the intro to um, Guns N' Roses' Sweet Child of Mine. You know when Slash is playing the intro riff and then the bass comes in underneath it? Yeah. Okay, I'm leaving yeah. that also. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So that had that's Duff McKay. That is not an Andy Wallace mix. Uh, okay. I'll say that. But that is that that bass sound. You hear how it's not quite as crisp as like Pink Floyd bass sounds, yeah. or like th th or, or like punk bass. Okay. That bass has chorus on it, and it's very ambient, and it's very. It's kind of fuzzy and it blends really well into the with the shimmering cymbals that Steven Adler is playing on the drums and 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 it's just it works within that atmosphere. I I always associate that with the idea of chorused bass and to me I've never I never I thought I thought I didn't like chorused bass <laughs> because anytime I've ever put chorus on any bass that I played I always thought it sounded muddy. Okay. I'm always like, ah, you want chorusy guitars because that has a lot of ambiance and a lot of space and it sounds atmospheric and airy. You don't want that on bass. You want your bass to be crisp and clean and and cut straight forward and Andy Wallace, every one of those tracks, I went and listened all those all 10 of those tracks, there's a little bit of chorus or flange on all of that bass. So here I'm sitting here thinking that I have one opinion about bass, but Andy Wallace's signature is putting a little bit of chorus on all of this bass. And the and it always sounds good. And you, yeah, you can't say you don't enjoy the music. Exactly. And and specifically, I really like the bass on all of those tracks. They are really good bass sounds. Yeah. Now the reason he does that, and the reason why I'm a terrible judge of this, is because I am a bass player. Mm -hmm. And when I play bass, I want to hear my bass. I want to hear my bass nice and crisp. I want to hear my bass sound like fucking John Deacon and Queen or James Jamerson and all those classic Motown songs. I want to I want to be able to hear it while I'm playing it. And I worry that chorus makes it sound muddy. Mm -hmm. But what chorus also does, if it's very tastefully done, if it's done not to excess is it helps it blend in with all the extra harmonic information you get, especially with distorted guitars. Distorted guitars have so much more than just the single note that they're playing. There's all these overtones. There's a little bit of feedback in there. And if you put a little bit of chorus on a pretty clean bass sound or a little bit of flange on a pretty clean bass sound, it blends really nicely. And bass is an instrument you want to blend because it is the bridge between drums and guitar. Yeah, absolutely. And so this makes a ton of sense to me. And now I'm shopping for a bass chorus pedal, Andy. <laughs> okay. I don't know when I would use the motherfucker, but I'm shopping for one. 
I mean, whenever you would play any of these classic Andy Wallace jams. Sure. All of these tracks are mixed so well with such brilliant... I mentioned at the beginning of this, all of those songs, to me, I can hear every instrument on them so well. But if I don't want to, if I just want to sit back and listen to Paper Cut or listen to Welcome Home, he mixed all of Good Apollo I'm Coming Home for. Which... I go back and forth depending on the day of the week, but is easily, I will say this, is easily a top three Coheed album. I'm sorry, it's Good Apollo, I'm Burning Star for, is yes. that it? Yes, that was it. I, apologies to Chris, who is probably <laughs> screaming at me right now. Uh, but yeah, he mixed that entire album. That is all Andy Wall. And, Hell yeah, okay. And, and look there, that was Coheed's big, like... We are now a mainstream band. It was right. their third album, yeah. but it was their big, huge monster. It was their coming out party. Yeah. And that's, that is Andy Wallace mixes. Okay. And they're so fucking amazing at that. I'm going to go back to Nevermind for a second. I mentioned that he's such a good mixer that he got brought on to remix Nevermind. And that Nirvana actually complained that the final version on the album sounded too poppy. And it sounded too right. good. Now, I'm going to link a YouTube video by a guy named Magic Jones, where he A-Bs Wallace's version and Butch Vig's version. And I'm going to ask you, dear boy, if possible, to drop in the audio specifically from 3 minutes and 32 seconds to 3 minutes and 52 seconds on it. Okay. Where he plays the drum parts of both versions back to back. You know what? I'm just going to do this on the floor. I wasn't planning on doing this. I'm going to go ahead and pull that up, and I want you to listen to this. Okay. I am I am interested to hear... Because you've heard Smells Like Teen Spirit, I'm sure. Yeah, of course. Yeah. You're, you have ears. <laughs> so we can cut this out. Um, okay. The next thing you hear is going to be Andy reacting to this mix setup. Sure. Okay, so you heard the two mixes. Yeah. Now, fo focusing in on the drums specifically, what do you see as the differences between those two mixes? So the second mix... Which was the Butch, Butch Vig mix. Which is the Butch Vig mix. It, it's a little harder, I feel like. It, 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 it sounds like Grohl is physically hitting the drums harder. But at the same time, the overall drum sound blends into the rest of the music in, in a way where it, it kind of starts to get lost mm -hmm. between the guitar and bass. So it's it's somehow heavier, but you hear less. Yeah. And that is a very good way of putting it. Um, I, if, if Again, if any of you are interested in this, I highly recommend listening to Mag watching Magic Jones's full YouTube videos about... Uh, a half hour long, but again, just that 20 second portion there is so demonstrative of what I'm talking about here. Vig's mix is fine. Yeah. The drums, like Jones refers to Vig's drums on this as very 80s. There's a ton of reverb on them. Which is a Phil Collins thing. Phil yeah. Collins loved to put reverb on his drums. 
There's a ton of reverb on them. They sound very big. They sound... You, you say it sounds like he's hitting them very hard. I say it sounds like he's hitting them in a very echoey room. Okay. It's... it's And, and, and yeah, he and he is hitting it hard. He Period. He just is. Yeah. This was a very aggressive performance from him in the studio. Both mixes are from the same studio performance. But Wallace's version blends everything so much more nicely and everything coheres better and the drums don't get lost in the mix the bass doesn't get lost in the mix it's not just a it's not just a wall of aggressive guitar sounds with like drum and bass kind of helping it out it's very mid-centered it's very focused and everything feels clean and you can really hear it even on these shitty laptop speakers you can hear it yeah absolutely so it's not the Phil Spector is what you're saying. Phil Spector was going for something else with that. <laughs> right, right. But yeah, it's just, it's it's not just a big wash of ambient sounds that it doesn't hear. You know what? I just thought of this. Wallace's mixes blend together where you can still distinguish everything. Whereas Vig's mix... Which, again, I don't want to discount it. It's a fine mix. There's nothing wrong with it. But it blurs together. Yeah. So that there's not that same definition with everything. Okay. Final note. Wonderful. Yeah. Final note for me. It's not a secret that I enjoy highlighting on this podcast the unsung heroes of our favorite media. And I feel like Wallace is one of them. His work is so good that sound engineers will regularly use the first Rage Against the Machine album, which he mixed the entirety of, to calibrate their PAs in stadiums. <laughs> That's awesome. That's like, so cool. Like you, you go to you go to a hockey match. Yeah, it is that there is a better than likely chance. That whoever is calibrating the PA system there is just going to put in Rage Against the Machine's self-titled debut and play a track from it and use that to calibrate all the settings. Right, right, Because they know that that is what all of... That that sound quality, if they can get that to sound good on their PA, everything that they play will sound good. That that is how you calibrate this shit. He has literally created a standard... He has set the standard. Yeah, he has set the gold gold bar. Yeah. And I just want that to be recognized and celebrated. He's, you know, he's still working, you know? The I'm 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 just looking at his um Wikipedia and the most recent track on here uh in 2022 he uh mastered the Impera album by Ghost, which I'm not familiar with, but last year he did Gojira's last album. Okay. Like, he's still working. He's still doing shit. And and I, I am a believer that you may not like all of the music that he works on. He works on a lot of heavy music. Mom, I love you. You're probably not going to like a lot of his stuff that's heavier. And that's fine. But he also worked on Natalie Imbruglia and Sheryl Crow. Like... And Kelly Clarkson, he works on a huge gamut of things. And all of it, even if you don't like the music, it sounds good. And there's something to the idea. Like, I, I was once a person who for a very long time did not care about 
how I listened to my music. I would take my phone and stick it in like the cup holder, the cup holder of my car and let it sit there while I listened to Pandora. Sure. And I've gotten better about that now. I actually do care. I've learned how to use an equalizer. I know how to calibrate those EQ settings. I care about the sound of what I'm listening to. Yeah. And if you care to any degree, maybe you don't care, and that's fine. But if you've ever listened to an album and wondered why it sounds as good as it is, beyond songwriting and performance, just if you've ever had an interest in anything having to do with just a song sounding good, if you see Andy Wallace's name on a record, look look at it, listen to it. Even if it's just a few tracks, even if it's not your genre, I guarantee you it is going to sound very well done. As a layman, as someone who's never heard any new else today, what I've put together and what I would tell the listeners is I have seen a lot of people say that Jeff Buckley's Hallelujah is maybe the greatest song of the 20th century. Mm. And this is the man who mixed it. Yeah. So exactly, put that respect on it. Straight no, wonderful. Up. Thank you for bringing this to the table, Leroy. You are very welcome. Do we want to move on to your? I don't know if I want to call this depressing or not. I will not call this depressing, and that will become clear why. Yeah, let's go ahead and talk about the hate, Alex. To start us off with a question. When I told you earlier that I wanted to talk about former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe today, did anything in particular come to mind for you? Does that name mean anything? Very, very little. I know Japanese politician and often listed as kind of shitty. Oh, yeah, and we're going to talk about why. Okay. And I know very little beyond that. Okay, and in fairness, I'm not coming to you with much more uh, of an understanding, but I, I know enough to be presenting on it, obviously. I was first put on to Shinzo Abe after listening to Cool Zone Media's Christopher Wong talk about modern Japanese fascism. Yeah, all right. And longtime listeners will recall that I... I mean, I have a bone to pick with fascism anywhere in a modern context. Good. I'd be worried if you didn't. Yeah, I don't distinguish it. But the thing I've talked about on the podcast before is the proliferation of Japanese fascism through anime. Yes. Particularly Attack on Titan. Oh, I I'd completely forgotten about that topic. Indeed, yeah, yeah, no. All right. So, like, this is just, this is something that, that perks my ears up just a, a degree more. Okay. Um, and I don't expect many of our American listeners to recognize that name. Um, but Abe was a fairly prominent and important Japanese political figure for the past 30 years. Mm-hmm. He was a former Japanese prime minister and has the distinction of being the longest serving one in Japanese history. Um, just for just the slightest background, it my understanding is the term for Japanese prime ministers is about three years. Mm-hmm. And like you don't get a lot of repetition or re-election. Abe served in the term for eight years. Mm -hmm. So he's distinguished for that. He's also distinguished for being a hyper right-wing Japanese conservative with incredibly close ties to the Yakuza and is freshly dead. (laughs) 
having been assassinated on July 7th, 2022. Okay, two things. Number one, listeners, for us recording, that was yesterday. It is July 8th. I heard this man died and went, oh, I know what I'm talking about on LHR today. (laughs) Oh, God, I love you. Second thing, is this like the third topic we've had where the Yakuza were somehow like involved with them? Well, there was the the Tampa Bay Lightning. Yeah. Well, I don't know what the second I, one is. I feel like there there was another reference to the Yakuza, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't fucking know, but... Was the Yakuza somehow involved in Attack on Titan? I mean, probably, shit. Mm. Uh, but yes, uh, special guest star, the Yakuza... Oh, shit. <laughs> ...making another appearance on the show. Um, I, just, I just noticed, I know you're about to say his birthday. This man... Is exactly to the day one was one year younger than my father. Oh, fascinating. Okay. To the day. Well, yes. Okay. For those of you who do not know Jaime Ruiz's birthday, <laughs> uh, Shinzo Abe was born September 21st, 1954, to a prominent political family in Japanese society. So, 1954, we're in the decade after World War II, and he comes up in affluence and like power Mm -hmm. Um, Abe's grandfather was a man named Nobusuke Kishi who in his own right was a horrible war criminal and the de facto puppet master authority over Japanese occupied China and Manchuria during World War II okay so just the, the briefest history lesson reminder in World War II, Japan just starts, like, aggressively expanding, mm-hmm. a.k.a. invading mainland Asia. Yep. Particularly China and the area that was Manchuria, but also the Philippines and Indonesia and Korea and just everywhere. I don't teach you much of that in, in uh, American schools. No, and this isn't in my notes, but that's because, spoiler alert, the CIA fucking loved Shinzo Abe. Jesus fucking Christ. Continue. Um, So, Nobusuke Kishi is, like, the guy basically running occupied China. Like, he is the he he is in the military but he is kind of like the the head honcho. It's above him you've got like Emperor Tojo and that's about it. Yes, that is the that is a re, that is the real person's name. Honey, I know. <laughs> You're giving me a look. <laughs> I have seen King of the Hill, I know. All right. So Kishi's government is presiding over the occupation, and that in co- of course includes forced labor of, you know, Chinese people, uh, economic manipulation, and most infamously, the forced indentured prostitution of thousands of women across Southeast Asia. Kishi was also a famously corrupt racist who has several quotes about how anybody who was not Japanese was just worse than dumb, worse than dog shit. He's got this famous quote that I didn't write down where he's basically, he says the Chinese people are like muddy water growing algae in it, whereas the Japanese are cool, clear water flowing down a river. 
This is the comparison this man makes during dinner parties. I think that was... That's pretty close to certain shit that I'm pretty sure Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, while he is the puppet master of occupied China, he basically starts making connections with Yakuza and just manipulates things so that the Yakuza can basically control the black market in all of wartime Southeast Asia. But they're cutting him in. They're cutting in um, Kishi. So, like, he's not in the Yakuza, but he's basically like, hey, you want to, like, just do your crime? Go for it. Just give me a percentage. Mm. The, the man is doing a shit ton of war crimes. He's doing a shit ton of crimes against humanity. And he is fucking so many women. Mm. Most of whom are the aforementioned, um, you know, indentured sex slaves. Which is assault. Which is assault. Um, you know, no matter what the context is, like, if you tell a bunch of women, like, okay, you're in our sex slave trade now, go have sex with the kingmaker, that's not consensual or should be allowed in any means. A real-life quote from Nobusuke Kishi regarding his time in Manchuria. <clears throat> I came so much, it was hard to clean it all up. That is a thing this man said in prison before he was elected as Japan's prime minister, which is the thing he has in common with Hitler, is going to prison and then getting out of prison and being able to form his own political party and then eventually becoming the leader of his nation. Yes, but in fairness, that's also true of Nelson Mandela. You know what? Fair. <laughs> so, Nobusuke Kishi, infamous piece of shit in, in you know... Other parts of the world, well-known as being one of the great monsters of World War II. Um, and this is the grandfather of Shinzo Abe. This is the the reason his family has political power is because of the shit that Grandpa Nobusoke was getting up to. As an adult, Shinzo Abe rises through the political ranks of the Liberal Democratic Party, which doesn't sound all that bad. But, for reference and comparison, the LDP is basically the most radical and farthest right-leaning uh, entity in Japanese politics. Yeah. This is, this is Trump's conservatism, to make a one-to-one -one comparison. I mean, something I think that... Something that I think that the average... American is very bad at recognizing is that the internalized terms that we use, Republican and Democrat, right, and even to a certain extent, liberal and conservative. Well, and that's that's the thing I was going to say is this has liberal in the name. Yeah, it's it's they are trash metrics by both international and academic standards. Sure. If you've ever heard the term neoliberal and you thought, well, it's liberal, it's probably a good thing, you need to read more. Which, by the way, Christopher Wong, the same guy who put me onto this, has a four-part series on the podcast It Could Happen Here about neoliberalism. Yes, I have heard it. It is splendid. There you go. And it will also infuriate you. <laughs> right. Um, but yes, yeah, fair point that, that like... 
words don't really mean anything, especially once you're crossing into different countries' political spectrums and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, to the Irish, the term Republican... Oh, sure. <laughs> ...means a very different thing... Right. ...than what it means here. Absolutely. Um, regardless... Abe rises through prominence in the liberal liberal Democratic Party, which, to go back, is the party that Grandpa Nobusuke Kishi founds. So, like, this is this is political nepotism to like the utmost extreme. But he rises through the ranks and eventually is elected to be Prime Minister of Japan in 2006. He's in the office for a year and then retires due to ulcerative colitis. But then comes back in 2012, where he then holds the position for the aforementioned eight years. Okay, so he's done this. He, he did this for more than eight years. Technically, technically, he served in, in as um, as prime minister for nine years. Yes. Okay. Um, and so, as prime minister, I'm just going to give a couple of highlights of Shinzo Abe's career here. Denied that the Japanese invasions of other Asian countries during World War II was anything more than an act of self-defense on the part of the Japanese Empire. Which is bullshit. Denied that comfort women, which is the term for the sex slave operation that Nobusuke Kishi helped create, denied that comfort women... Um, was a, a a sex slavery ring and that the abuse ever actually took place. Which that one, I just, I have to wrap my own head around because like we are on record of Nobusuke Kishi saying, oh yeah, I got so much. I fucked so much. I fucked so hard. That is on record. That is on a thing. And even if you're going to cut out everything else that other people say about it, your grandfather is sitting here going like, oh, no, I had so much sex. And you basically just drop it off to, yeah, grandpa was a player. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's the same thing. Okay, if I'm going to, like, I, let, let me take a moment to shit on my fellow leftists. It's the same thing as people who really don't like to talk about um, all of the women that Fidel Castro had abducted so mm. that he could get him, get, get his jollies off. And it doesn't matter what you say about the leftist revolution if you're kidnapping women to satisfy your urges under literal pain of torture. Sure. You're a piece of shit. Yeah. A complete side note, but in my research, I, I read it. A defense of these first two points is that nobody in Japanese politics formally acknowledges the war crimes that took place during World War II. It is apparently deemed an act of political suicide to, like, reference or talk about negatively the, the shit that Japan got up to, which is such a fascinating difference between Germany. Yeah. And the United States, if we're being fair. No, I mean, and, and that's a thing. It's like, United, like... United States' sense of self is only allowed to permeate because we continually purge any meaningful high-level acknowledgement 
of the shit that we have and continue to do. Right. I'm not surprised that that happens in other nations as well. Sure. Like, I don't know any... I don't know anyone with power for whom that power is made more secure by acknowledging that with power, they have committed atrocities. Right, I see your point there. So, I'm... The other thing people in power tend to do is abuse it. And that's what Shinzo Abe has done by getting involved in numerous favoritism scandals. Like, that's literally the heading on that section of the, like, Wikipedia article is quote-unquote favoritism scandals. And it's a bunch of, like, really weird minor shit. Like, he he passed a, a family friend through a veterinary license when the friend wasn't actually qualified to be a vet. Yeah. Which, you know, it's, it's little shit here and there. It's, oh, I'm going to give you a minor, like, cabinet position. Oh, I'm going to pass you through veterinary school. But nonetheless is, like an abuse of power that you should not be having from your highest form elected official. Yes. And it's also, I mean, it happens constantly, but the fact that it's even referenced as a scandal intrigues me, but well, I would probably chalk that up to how like intense specifically like Japanese politics and Japanese business class tends to be, you know, it's, it's, not to come across as totally jingoistic as the white guy, but it is a thing where it is such a, like, proprietary-based society that I could see something as minor as, like, yeah, no, I, I, I rubber-stamped his veterinary license. Could be, like, this whole big fucking deal. I mean, listen, that standard waxes and wanes even in this culture. Jimmy sure. Carter sold his fucking peanut farm... So that there wasn't a chance of anyone accusing him right. of, like, favoritism when he signed a certain agriculture bill. Right. And Donald Trump made, I think, well over a couple of million dollars a year just on having Secret Service and White House staff staying at his hotels when he traveled. Yeah. Well... To save the best for last in regards to Shinzo Abe, the final bullet point I have here uh, is he advocated the reforming of the Japanese self-defense force to essentially recreate the Japanese armed forces back into a functional military. Because this is another thing I don't think a lot of people know, but after World War II, the Allied powers straight up made it illegal for Japan to have a standing military as we know it. Yes, we talked about this during um, Attack on Titan. Oh, well, now you remember. Perfect. Yes. <laughs> uh, Shinzo Abe has, like, always decried this and tried to do, uh, you know, reform it into being a functional military again. Um, and has personally championed the right and concept for Japan to oversee and create a nuclear arms program under the defense of, like, well, North Korea's right there, and, like, we need to be able to have our own nuclear deterrent, which I would argue no one should get to have a nuclear deterrent, and the less we have, the better. To sum up, 
Shinzo Abe's political tenure is essentially just endless denials of war crimes and wartime atrocities while doing everything he can to strengthen the police and the military systems in Japan, all while abusing his power to help other friends and family get whatever he felt like he could get away with. So fascism. Yeah. <laughs> like, throw in extreme nationalism and you have... That is literally just a sentence about fascism. Well, and the thing is, I forgot to put it in here, but in my research, like... Several members of his cabinet, of Shinzo Abe's cabinet, were on record like openly admiring Hitler and his policies and, and Nazi Germany as like a political entity to the point where like critics of the Abe regime were basically like, you know, it's really hard to deny that you're a bunch of Nazis when this guy, this guy, and that guy are all, like, on the record saying the Nazis kicked ass and we admire them. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it is it is just fascism, which is no good. However, there is a silver lining, if, if you will remember, listeners. <laughs> At time of recording, Shinzo Abe was killed, giving a speech endorsing another extreme far-right Japanese political candidate. He was shot in the street. His assassin is a former Japanese maritime self-defense officer who shot him from close range with what people have reported as a homemade electronic-operated double-barreled shotgun. Metal. Which, yeah, like, okay, this is where I, I kind of went back and forth on what my take was going to be here. I don't necessarily want to advocate um, assassination. Agreed. But... Assassination of a fascist. You know, it's... <sighs> it, it, just to continue my point, cutting out aside the fact that a, a former world leader was killed, this attacker, this assailant, built two guns out of duct tape and, like, a fucking electric firing mechanism. And just, like... That, that's how people were saying, like, that's how he got these weapons because, like, Japan has much stricter gun gun laws than the u.s does and this guy got around it by essentially building from scratch a shotgun that is cool <laughs> that that sentence in a vacuum is is fascinating uh, i'll show you how to make a bomb out of a toilet paper roll and a stick of dynamite <laughs> exactly well it is not very christian to celebrate the death of somebody I would posit the death of Shinzo Abe is a net good in the world and for Japanese society because the man was a far-right, corrupt, cowardly piece of shit, and today there is one less fascist in the world. And you know LHR's stance on fascists. Yes. Uh, so I'm troubled here because I'm the motherfucker who came in with a like anti-death penalty topic. <laughs> sure. <laughs> like... Do I feel like political assassination is, like, a good first move? No. And I agree. Um, I, and, and something I will say, something that is always worth being worried about. It's not something you can be sure of, because people will sometimes treat it like it is, but something to be wary of is a response to assassination. Sure. So the thing that I was always afraid of 
if something were to ever happen, I'm not even going to say assassination. I always thought like if Donald Trump literally just had like a heart attack in office, the conspiracy theories alone that he was assassinated or poisoned or what have you would elicit a violent far right response. Yeah, sure. Because when here's the thing on the left, when one of ours is assassinated, a lot of the time, nothing happens. Occasionally, you get the riots after MLK. But you have to think about, like, how many people before MLK were assassinated before we got to that point. Right. Like, no, there weren't riots after Fred Hampton. No. Um, and, and, yeah, I mean, to, to not make so much light of it. it it certainly will probably have very troubling implications definitely you know by time of recording this is a month or two old um and who knows what the uh, japanese right is doing in response to you know the attack on shinzo abe and it could be that it's absolutely nothing and one day we can dance on his grave right yeah because that's the point I, like the point i want to emphasize here I want to state that I don't believe that assassination is the go should be a go-to method. Burning down a police station, I'm all over it. Sure. Assassinating a political figure, I have my troubles with it. But am I happy he's dead? You bet your fucking ass I am. Yeah, I mean, the most nuance, maybe nuance is the wrong word. My, my honest take of it, and this is a little bit of my own embitterment of, you know, the modern day world. It seems to me like the fascists are already going out and carrying out mass shootings of their own. That's fair. And, you know, striking down the innocent and attacking people on Fourth of July and so much horrible shit. Um, for a well-known fascist world leader to get shot in the street and die is at least a little refreshing compared to what I've been used to. That's fair. Because it's, because we come from a side of the spectrum where people are still arguing whether or not it's ethical to punch a Nazi. Right. And, and y'all always ethical to punch a Nazi. It is always ethical to punch a Nazi. It is always ethical to punch a Nazi. So we are not endorsing the use of assassination. However, punch a Nazi. Punch a Nazi and rest in piss Shinzo Abe. Shall we move on to our questions? Let's go for it. Oh, uh, you were did did you copy paste this or did you type this out? I so I found the question on okay. Reddit. Okay. But this came to us through TikTok. Which, Jesus Christ. Beautiful app. Yeah. No. All right. <laughs> so this is like Reddit slash TikTok. Do you want to read it since you typed it out? Or would you like me to read it since you already did the labor? Uh, I'll go ahead and read it. I don't mind. Okay. Okay. So I got into Cornell last week. Honestly, I think it was a fluke. I'm not smart, like at all. I got a 28 ACT, a decent GPA because my school grade inflates considerably. I had some decent extracurriculars, but nothing remotely competitive enough to get me into a school like Cornell. But anyways, 
My twin sister is the opposite of me. She's a genius. She has always had more impressive stats, 34 ACT, and she only took it once compared to my three times. She has way better grades, way cooler extracurriculars. Everyone always looks up to her as the smart one. I didn't and still don't mind. It's true. The only reason I can fathom I got in and she didn't is that she applied to the engineering college while I applied to arts and sciences. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Cornell, but they have a bunch of different colleges you can apply to, each with their own different admission criteria. That ain't new, honey. Well, last week, decisions for Ivy's came out. Unfortunately for my sister, she did not get into a single one, including her first choice, which was Cornell. She checked as soon as it was available and called me bawling. I consoled her and told her everything was going to be okay, that who cares what school you go to, that she was brilliant and going to be successful no matter where she goes. And anyways, at this point, I'm pretty much resolved that I was getting rejected, so I didn't even bother looking at my email until later that night. Well, guess my surprise, because I'm a Cornellian. I got in. I don't know how, but I did. I really want to go. But this would devastate my sister. All week, she's been crying and solemn and sad. She's been angry at her friends who got into top schools, especially the ones with lower stats. She has decided to go to NYU, but she just hasn't been herself. I haven't told her parents. I assume, I think they assumed I didn't get in because she didn't. Am I being selfish? Should I just go with her to New York City? We've always thought we were going to school together, but like, it's Cornell. I couldn't in a million years imagine I'd get in. I've been researching obsessively about it, and I can't shake the desire that if I don't go, I'll regret it. Ithaca looks beautiful. It's a small town, which I would love to get away from a huge city like New York. It seems like a dream opportunity. Am I being a bad sister? I know she would be upset. We were supposed to go to school together. It would crush her. I really don't have anyone else to talk to. So am I the asshole for going to her dream school, especially considering how much harder she's worked compared to me? Okay. So we need a name. We do need a name. We've got sisters. We've got, like, I, I kind of want to just do the sister, sister, sisters. I T mean. Tia and Tamara. I think this is the first time we've had a twin-based question. It might be. Um... I know their names weren't Maori. Yeah, so they were Tia Landry and Tamara Campbell. Tamara, as I recall, was the like much less academically uh, decorated, more like social one. Whereas Tia was the more like, I'm an academic, I'm a smart person one. Sure. So I suppose, if, if you're cool with it, um, Tamara Campbell, sister, sister. I am perfectly cool with it. Okay, the other option was Zach and Cody. but <laughs> Well, no, this one is better then. Yeah. All right. Tamara Campbell, sister, sister. You you read, so shall I take the first go? Go right ahead. Um, off the bat, Tamara, you are not a bad sister. You are not an asshole. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say, if you want it, you should go to Cornell. 
I'm going to tell you up front, there is a non-zero chance that you are absolutely right about why you managed to get it. That is entirely possible. I like I had possibly the opposite thing happen. My like okay, my academics were good enough. My dream school was NYU, by the way. So fuck you a little bit, Tia, <laughs> for your like your backup being my dream school. If I had applied NYU for academics, I probably had a pretty decent chance of getting in. Like my SATs were good enough, my grades were great. Like I didn't have a ton of extracurriculars, but like I very possibly could have gotten into NYU had I gone for just straight like English and academics. But I was an artsy bitch <laughs> and wanted to be an actor and pursue theater and uh -huh. Tisch School of the Arts at NYU is ridiculous and I didn't have a chance to get there. So I probably could have gone to my dream school had I gone for a different reason. You very possibly, like, you applied to Cornell, you wanted to go there, like, and you got in. It's okay for Tia to be grieving. I worry a little bit at this whole thing where she's angry at her friends for getting into their schools. Because that's shitty. Like, you should not be angry at people because things are working out for them just because it didn't work out for you. And I get it. Y'all yeah. are 17, 18 years old probably. Like, I've, and I've seen grown people do this. That's, that's petty shit. Like, this is an instructive moment for Tia where she can really, really learn how to be happy for other people and how to be okay with things. Sure. You have an incredible opportunity here. And it sounds like you want it. You are not an asshole for deciding to go for that opportunity. I think you might regret it. There's a very real chance you might. At the end of the day, I don't think the decision matters too terribly much because frankly, where you go to where you go to college doesn't matter very much. Right. Like up front. I really liked where I went to school and it did a lot for me. It argued that there is a very complicated, convoluted chain that directly ties my going to that school with my living in Asheville now, which maybe I can tell that story on the pod at some point. Andy knows the story, but like that was a very important moment and I absolutely should have gone to a fucking state school because I could have gotten a free ride there. <laughs> right. And I'm still paying for that, literally. You told me today how upset you were that your student loans have changed hands. Yeah, motherfuckers. Anyway, I think that you might regret not going to Cornell, or at the very least, you'll be playing a lot of what if. Mm. There's less of a pops possibility, though, though there is a possibility that you'll play some what if about not going to NYU and being with your sister. But if you don't go to a school you really want to go to specifically because you're worried that your sister is going to be shitty about it, that's on your fucking sister. And if this ruins your relationship, your sister's a bad person who you shouldn't be around. 
Andy? <laughs> you know, I mean, so the, the biggest thing I was going to contribute was talking about how in my own career and collegiate experience, I went to UCF. I did go to the state school and, you know, majored in radio television and wound up on a job um, where a bunch of people were standing around and it was like, oh, where'd you go? Oh, I'm, I went to UCF and did the TV program. Where'd you go? Oh, I went to Valencia, the community college, and I did the um, the film program. Oh, okay, where'd you go? Oh, I went to um, Full Sail, which is like the most expensive college in the nation and is supposed to be the top film school. And and oh, where'd you go? Oh, I know the uh, director of the thing, and they asked me to, you know, come help out. And we're all sitting here as production assistants. And granted, that is me comparing the career of like television, TV to other things. However, you mentioned you went in for arts and sciences, and. I got to wonder exactly how much of a difference there is in the arts and sciences program at Cornell University versus the one at NYU versus the one at some other third school. Like not to belittle what, and I've already got them mixed up. I don't remember if it's Tia or Tamara. Um, Tamara is our question asker. Tia is the sister. Not to belittle what Tamara is going for in life, but like unless you're going for engineering or something of that caliber, I do tend to think, like you say, it doesn't matter where you go as so much the opportunity you make in your collegiate experience. Now, that said, I absolutely agree with you that if um, this causes a huge rift between Tia and Tamara, that is absolutely on Tia. Mm -hmm. And if Tia is as good of a sister as one would have to think, they would be able to learn to support Tamara in the decision to go to Cornell. Now, I completely understand being upset and being shitty to your friends. Like, Alex, do you remember how big of a deal getting into the college you wanted was? See, I was a piece of shit. <laughs> um, and because I knew I wasn't going to get to go to my college that I really wanted to go to because it was out of state and too expensive, so I didn't even bother applying, I was like, well, fuck it. This is the place I'm going to, and I'm going to spite you all with it. So I was just a piece of shit about okay, it. Okay, well, fair enough. But I remember what it meant to other people. Yeah, I mean, in, in my experience, my girlfriend at the time and I were texting back and forth about, oh, my God, I got in here. Oh, my God, I didn't get in here just because we were trying to make sure we wound up going to the same school to go be in the theater program, <laughs> which we did and then broke up like a month into college so for whatever that's worth like like happens <laughs> like happens i my biggest thing is like i don't think tamara is the asshole under any circumstances i think it doesn't matter so much if they make the decision to go to cornell or not i don't think it I, I believe in the familial bond here to 
suspect it's going to be okay. And beyond that, I wouldn't begrudge Tamara for making the decision to go to Cornell. I wouldn't begrudge Tamara for deciding, no, you know what? We always said we were going to go to school together, which, by the way, wait. Earlier in the question, there was an assumption that Tia was going to go to Cornell and Tamara wasn't, but whatever. You know what? That's a good point. Like, right? no one expected Tamara to get into Cornell, but Tia's upset that she didn't get into Cornell. Tia would 100 fucking percent go to Cornell if the only place Tamara got into was NYU or somewhere else. And it sounds like everybody would go, yes, this was always what was going to happen. So Tia can eat a bag of dicks. Yeah, yeah I do agree with that point. <laughs> Tamara, you're, not a, you're not an asshole. Tamara. You are not the asshole. I, I will definitively agree with Alex on that point. Yeah. Furthermore, college is overrated. Like, like go, because that not having that piece of paper will definitely be a hindrance to a lot of things. Indeed. But, like, don't worry so much about it. And for God's sake, NYU is an incredible school, and ultimately, whatever you go to study, it's going to matter, like, less than 5% whether you go to Cornell or go to NYU. And if you go to the vocational school and, like, get a degree in applied hydro engineering i don't know a trade you are more likely to have a better long-term career than the person who is going to cornell for arts and sciences again no disrespect to merit yeah college shouldn't be for career training anyway correct <sighs> if you agree <laughs> or disagree or disagree I suppose that doesn't matter because what we're interested in is if you have a question. We want to hear your relationship questions, whether they be involved with a family member. I'm, I'm completely interested in exploring more twin dynamic troubles, um, whether they be, uh, you know, about the relationship you have with a a college entity or a job or anything like that, whether it's a pet question, whether it's a, a true boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife relationship question, whatever kind of question it is, we want to hear it. And you can send those questions in to love, hate relationship podcast at gmail.com where you know what? We promise we'll read them. That's right. Subscribe to us on Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even tune in radio. Hey, Mom. Uh, you can also rate and or review us on any and or all of those platforms. We're told it helps people find the show. I don't know. I don't know if I see it. Prove me wrong. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D. Uh, where you can see random ass shit that we just tweet about, usually related to old episode topics. Yep. And you can DM us your questions there. We would love to find them. We absolutely would. You can find me, Andy Bowell, at JoboCop2113. You can also find me at Andy's underscore minis, which is currently my most popping off active social media account, Jesus which Christ. means a lot of you need to go ahead and follow LHR Pod 
or my other podcast, Cult Fiction, where I watch cult films with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson, including, like we mentioned, the original Clerks. So that's where you can find me. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, chess.com, and Lychess, all at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z. Thanks for listening, y'all. As ever, please tell your enemies. Thank you.